All right, well, better late than ever. Let's do this thing. Let's, let's go ahead and get started. First of all, thanks, thanks for being here. Um, it is a, it's a joy to uh, be here at this church. It's, it's a delight to do theology with you, to think theologically with you and learn theology together. Um, again, I, I repeat the same line every time, but theology is, is you know, there, there's nothing theoretical about it. If it's theoretical, then we're doing it wrong. Um, theology, remember, is taking the most lofty, exalted thoughts about God and connecting them to the everyday issues in the trenches of life. Theology is for life. It's for living. So the whole point of doing these, these seminars is, is really to connect the dots, to, to view life through a particular pair of lenses that help us live in a way that puts Christ on display. So that's why we're doing this. We're not playing games here when we're talking, talking theology. Uh, also, uh, please know that we will, uh, I'm going to make some time for questions at the end. So um, I know not everyone's super comfortable with raising hands and coming up with a question on the spot. So, um, and I'm, I'm kind of that way too. I'm like a real slow burn. It takes me a while to think of the question I want to ask. So if you're like me, um, you can tech, that's a zero. Uh, you can text me your question and then I'll answer it the best I can at the end. Okay. Oh, yeah, uh, that would probably be better, eh? Actually, I'll do it this way. I'll try to provide a nice accent. Kind of make it artistic. Actually, that's going to make it more illegible, sorry. <laughs> Bad idea. Okay, so 435-1328. Don't spam me or anything. Don't, you know, don't do anything creepy. All right, well, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we will dive in, and uh, we'll have a good time doing theology, all right? Well, Lord, we give you thanks for your kindness to us. Oh, Lord, the fact that we are even praying to you and that you hear uh, 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 our prayers is indicative that you have done something profound in our lives. Lord, what it indicates is not only that at one point in time we made a decision to, to follow Christ, but it also has implications that there was something that happened to us that enabled and empowered us to follow Christ. We acknowledge, Lord, that, that although we were 100% responsible to repent and believe and to trust in Christ and, and forsake sin and, and, and um, yield our lives to your Son, Father, we, we realize that um, our salvation, for which we were responsible to repent and believe that the roots of our salvation stretch back into eternity past when there was only you and the Son and the Spirit. And so what we're dealing with here is, is really significant. Lord, I pray that we would leave with a sense of real wonder about what our salvation actually is and means. Lord, I pray that there would even be a, a sense of trembling over the reality that, that, that we have been chosen and predestined and purchased and paid for and regenerated and awakened and indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. I pray that there would be just a real sense of wonder about what our salvation means. And so, Lord, help me to teach. And, of course, I will preach inevitably. Help me to do so with clarity. And I pray that those here would be blessed and encouraged and helped and strengthened and, and that as we collect our theological dots, I pray that we could connect our theological dots and it would result in life change, transformation, and the advance of the Great Commission. So Lord, give us much grace, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, last month, as you know, we began a a five-part series known as the Doctrines of Grace, or the Doctrines of Sovereign Grace. And what we saw was that what the Doctrines of Grace are, are essentially a summary way to describe God's sovereign work in salvation. That's what the doctrines of grace are. It's just a way of summarizing the things that God had to do to save us from eternal woe and despair. That, that's the doctrines of grace, and which, is, which is profoundly exciting. Um, and what we saw last week, I'll just do a little bit of review, um, uh, we saw last month that when we're talking about the, the doctrines of grace, which is essentially composed of five doctrines, what that is, the, some guys back, some theologians and pastors back in the 1600s did us a real solid, and they formed a condensed, packaged way of displaying the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. So what are the things that God did to save you from eternal ruin and despair? That's the doctrines of grace. Now, these five doctrines that we're going to look at, we're going to look at the first one tonight. These doctrines don't say everything there is to say about our salvation. Um, but what these, what these are, are the sort of mountaintops of salvation, as it were. What these are, are, uh, what these, are the, these most conspicuously put God on display as the sovereign author and actor of our salvation. Um, John Piper puts it like this. He says, this is what the five points of Calvinism are all about. Not the power and sovereignty of God in general, but his power and sovereignty in the way he saves people in particular. So that's what we're talking about, the way God saves people in particular. And this is really important because... You know, I suppose for your first week as a believer, if, if all you can sort of process is, okay, I don't know how this thing works. All I know is, is that I once was blind, but now I see. Okay, good. Great testimony. Ten years later, after uh, meditation on the scriptures, we should know something about our salvation. We should know what God has done in our lives to bring us to his son. We should know the transaction. We should know what the death of Christ means and how it works. I don't mean that we should have a PhD in theology or that we have to become you know, super intellectual. I just mean we should know a little something about what God has done in our life. So you, you can't avoid the fact that you are all called to think theologically. The Bible calls you to connect the dots of your theology because in so doing, it doesn't make you Mr. Smarty Pants. What it does, when you connect the theological dots, what it does is that equips you to live life in the trenches. Thinking theologically equips you to live real life in the trenches, and the trenches are hard. So what's going to sustain us? What's going to strengthen us in the trenches of life? Doctrine. Theology, what God says in his word. So that's why we're doing this series. And as you know, there, there are five doctrines of grace. I won't spend a lot of time unfolding these because we'll get to these in the, in the coming month. But as you know, if you're at all familiar with these doctrines and have done any reading, you know that there is, first, there is unconditional election, which is what we're going to look at tonight. That is the truth that God chose particular souls from every nation to be saved through the sin-bearing death of Christ. By the way, you don't have to write any of this down. You're going to get this like 10 times. Uh, number two, there's total depravity. 
total depravity, which is the truth that we were all born spiritually dead slaves to sin. Number three, there is what's called particular atonement. That is that the death of Christ, the death that Christ died was in particular for the elect. And we'll get to the, to, that's a pretty gnarly one. So we'll get to all that. The fourth doctrine of grace is known as irresistible grace. That's the sovereign miracle that intervened in our lives and awakened us from the dead, allowing us to repent and believe in Christ. And then number five, there's what's called perseverance of the saints. That is the invincible work of God to keep us and preserve us through his word to the end. So those are the five doctrines, and they have other names, but, but that's what we're going to cover in uh, uh, the following month. And what we did last month, too, is we, we thought, okay, if we're going to do a, a seminar on the doctrines of grace, we should probably define what grace is, right? Because that's a great word, and we should use that word, but we should also know what that word means, what it is. And, and to put you on the spot here, I didn't prepare you for any of this, but hey, that's, that's how I roll. What is grace? What is that? So when you talk about grace with people, what do you mean by that? What is grace? It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be flashy. Just, you know, basic is just fine. What is grace? Undeserved favor. Good. I think that's a good default. Like, you know, in an elevator when someone's walking out, hey, grace is undeserved favor and the doors close. Okay, I think that's a good, I think that's a good definition. Okay, what else? Any, anything to add? The mystery that God allowed us to see and understand and be drawn to salvation through Christ. Good. That's, that's really well put. The, the mystery of God allowing us to, uh, I won't get it all, that was, that was really good. The mystery the, uh, of God allowing us to uh, see Christ and believe the gospel and be saved, right? God's, you know, God's, you know, working in our lives, though we did not deserve it, right? Very good. What else? Grace. His enabling power to do what he calls us to do. Okay, excellent. I, I, I like that. Yeah. You're specifically asking like about God's grace, or you talking about grace that we did in general. Yeah, good question. Good clarification. Yeah, uh, God's grace. Yeah. So here's here's one. Um, I one of the ways I like to think about God's grace is it is God's pleasure to save sinners from what they most deserve and to give them what they least deserve, namely himself to be enjoyed forever. That's grace. It's, his, it's God's pleasure to save us from what we least deserve and his pleasure to give us what we, what we most deserve. Save us, thank you. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a heretic now. I'll just close up shop and leave. It's God's pleasure to save us from what we most deserve and give us what we least deserve, namely himself to be enjoyed as a treasure forever. So that's, that's God's grace. And when I say sovereign grace, you know, I'm modifying it there, but when I say sovereign grace, I mean that we're just simply drawing out the reality that grace is an act that only a sovereign God can perform. We're just pointing out that the Bible indicates that there are, there are some things that only God can do, and that is sovereign grace. And so what that means is that every single phase and stage and aspect of our salvation, everything from election at the beginning to glorification at the end, and everything in between is a supernatural work of God that that only he could perform. 
Now, that does not mean that we are not responsible. It doesn't mean that we don't make real choices. No one believes that. It's just simply saying that in some mystery, um, God is ultimately decisive in every aspect of our salvation to the degree that nothing we do has any meritorious value. Right? That's, that's what we're saying. So this grace, sovereign grace, that's what we're, that's what we're talking about here. Okay, so now we get to the topic of tonight, which is unconditional election. Unconditional election. And I I trust this is going to be a a real encouragement for you. And I want to begin with the question of, and I don't want you to answer out loud, but here's the question. How did you get saved? Just think about it. Don't answer. but, But how did you get saved? Because on the surface, it's a simple question. Right? But in reality, that is a question of oceanic significance, the depths of which cannot be touched by mere human reason. Because in answer to the question, how did you get saved, the most basic and simple answer is, well, I heard the gospel and I believed. That's it. I mean, there, there's, there's nothing complicated about that. There's no rocket science to untangle. I heard the gospel, I believed it. End of story. And yet, and yet, here's the question. How then did you come to believe? Right? Was your faith, belief, did that originate ultimately from you? Or, or, here's, or add to that, were there other powers and influences at work in your salvation? Does the Bible give any indication that there was something else at work in your soul? Was there something else outside of you that happened that enabled and empowered you to believe? Because what if, what if your faith with which you placed in God, what if that was not only produced and empowered by God in the moment of your conversion, but what if it was also predestined by God at some point in time in history? What if in eternity past, (laughs) there was a book written with the names of every single person in history whom God had chosen to be saved. And what if the title of the book was The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain? And what if the ultimate reason and explanation why you believed is because your name was inscribed in that book before time began? What if that were the case? Let's put it this way. What if your infinite joy in Jesus Christ was predestined for you before the ages began? Because guess what? All of that is true. And what that is, is the doctrine of unconditional election. So you can feel it. We're in way over our heads here. Right, way over our heads. You know, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna feel like little kids scrawling with with crayons, right? We're gonna feel like little ants at the the foot of Mount Everest, just kind of gaping up at the towering majesty that lies before us. And yet, that is good for us. That's very good for us to to see things like that. You see, we're gonna realize that that the, to be or not to be is not the question nor is it even our choice. (laughs) Rather, we simply find ourselves here on the stage of the universe, swept up into this cosmic plan of God, designed before the foundation of the world, and, and although we might not fully be able to understand all that that means, we wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. You see, I want you to leave tonight 
not merely with a sense that election is somehow true, I also want you to leave with a sense that that this is a gateway to your joy. That this is a pathway to your eternal happiness. That this is glorious and incredible news. And so, um, despite all of its difficulty and controversy, I want you to see that, that election is God's means of securing his own glory. Election is God's means of securing your own joy. Election is God's means of guaranteeing that the plan of salvation will be fulfilled. Because my question is, how do we know that Muslims and Mormons and members from the homosexual community, like how do we know that they can be saved by the gospel? Like what's the guarantee of that? You know, what's our guarantee that people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people can be saved by the gospel? Like how do we know that that's going to work out? What's the hope that hostile Jews and and hardened family members can actually be reached, that it's not too late? Like, how do we know that? Well, it's because we we skipped to the end and we saw the outcome of the story, right? We saw the last page. We saw the, and they lived happily ever after at the end. And what we see is that how those people got there was because God chose them to be there. That is our guarantee that this thing is going to work out. This is our guarantee that, that, that we are not just spinning our wheels for nothing, that God is at work. So I'm in part three in my notes. I don't know where that is in yours. I don't, I don't know if it all matches up. So, but uh, uh, I'll talk about a definition of election, a definition of election. And, and yet before we do that, I, well, no, I, I was, I was going to explain how election fits within the plan of salvation, which I kind of already did. Yeah, I think you could, you could put it this way. You've got the Trinity in the beginning, in the eternity past. You've got the Trinity in the future. But what's the difference? So you tell me, what's the difference between eternity past with the Trinity and eternity future with the Trinity? What's the difference between those two states? What's the difference? What? We're going to reside with him. Someone's going to be there with the Trinity. Who? Elect us. People will be there. This is incredible. And so you've got the Trinity at one end. You've got the Trinity at the other end. And you've got people worshiping the Trinity. And what you have in the middle is this dramatic cosmic plan of salvation that explains how those nations got there. And how they got there was because God chose them to be there. So let's, uh, and, and, and so hopefully you're beginning to see the, the scope and the weight of what we're talking about when we talk about election, because this has nothing to do with John Calvin or, or, or petty theological debates. There's nothing to do with that. This has to do with our eternal joy and the guarantee of God's eternal plan. All right, so let's, let's define unconditional election. So maybe it's on your notes. It's definitely on mine. I've got a couple quotes from some theology books. They're long. They're pretty, you know, pretty weighty, pretty big. Page five. Oh, okay. They're on page five. Okay, good. So I'll read these. I know you can read, but I'll read them. And they each have their various strengths and, and we, can, we can look at those. The first one comes from Lewis Burkhoff, Systematic Theology Book, which is a great book, by the way. He says, election may be defined as that eternal act of God 
whereby he, in his sovereign good pleasure, and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of people to be the recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. More briefly, it may be said, to be God's eternal purpose to save some of the human race in and by Jesus Christ. That's good. That's really, really good. It's long. It's, it's pretty, you know, there's a lot of words there, but I think that's really helpful. Notice he says that it, it's an eternal act. Notice that he says that it was done in God's sovereign good pleasure. So, so good pleasure. I mean, that, that, that just that just speaks and displays the, the kindness and benevolence of God in this whole thing. This was not a cold, calculated, simple moving pieces on a chessboard. There's, there's something warm and relational here. Notice that he says that he chooses a certain number of people to be the recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. So, there's, so there is a kind of a righteous discrimination. Some are chosen and some are not, and they're chosen to receive salvation. And more specifically, he specifies that some are chosen to be saved by Jesus Christ. That's, that's an excellent definition. Uh, Wayne Grudem's got his, which is also very good. Um, And then Bethlehem Baptist Church, uh, they say this, we believe that God's election is that which was given through his son Christ Jesus before the world began. By this act, God chose before the foundation of the world those who would be delivered from bondage to sin and brought to repentance and saving faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Excellently said. So, again, what I like about that particular definition is that it really makes clear that election is in relation to the person and work of Christ. And then, notice, it's before the world began. right? It's before time. God chose. God is the actor. He is the one who does the choosing. And then he chose, chooses those particularly who will be delivered from bondage to sin and brought to repentance and saving faith in Christ. And so this, this is incredible. I mean, if you think about just even your own life and your own conversion, you know, we were there, obviously, and it happened in real time and we experienced it. And yet it's, it, it just boggles the mind to consider, you know, my conversion, which was at a church concert you know, in 1998 and, you know, heard the gospel basically for the first time. And, you know, I'm, you know, the, I'm talking with one of the pastors at, at the church and he's asking me a bunch of questions. I don't even know what he's talking about. And he prays for me and I don't even remember what he prayed. And, and, and yet I remember there was a sense of like, okay, all right, I, I'm in, I'm going to follow Christ. It, it just didn't dawn on me in the moment that that moment that I experienced in real time had connections and, and lines of connection all the way back to eternity past. That, that my name was part of an eternal conversation between the persons of the Trinity before time began. It's, just, it, it's, it's staggering to consider this. So here's my definition. I kind of take a, a bunch of you know, different things from those and I kind of cobble it together. Here's mine. Unconditional election means that God, before time, in order to display the full extent of his glory, 
sovereignly and unconditionally singled out and selected a particular number of souls from every nation to be saved, whom he then gave to his son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. So you you see some some, uh, key elements there. God before time. Election begins with God. God before time. And then I give the purpose of why he chose and who he chose. I gave the purpose of that right on the front end in order to display the full extent of his glory. You see, election is a glory of God issue. This is about the glory of God. In order to display his glory, he sovereignly and unconditionally, and sovereignly, I mean he did it single-handedly. It was a unilateral decision. He did it without consulting anybody He's the one that did it. He sovereignly, unconditionally singled out and selected a particular number of souls. So it's not a you know, massive general swath of humanity, just an ocean of humanity. No, he, he picked particular souls. And then, and then here's what I thought was key, from every nation. From every nation. Because we need to be reminded that, that God has a global plan. And then for me, this is really key. The Gospel of John is really instrumental here. That those whom the Father chose, he gave to his Son before time. He gave them to his Son. If you read John 17, it's really, really clear. Actually, John 6, 37 and 39, John 10, 26 through 30, and then uh, John 17, verses 2 through 5, and then 24 through 26. So all these passages in the Gospel of John makes really clear that, that there's this transaction, this Trinitarian transaction before time where Father and Son have this powwow together, And the father who loves his son orchestrates a plan so that people will, he'll create a people and he'll save some of those people and these people will marvel and love his son. And so he gives these people, these souls to his son for whom his son would die and purchase with his blood. This is an incredible thing. And you get this sense from election and from the gospel of John that salvation is not some, merely some commodity that we get as a reward for our faith in Christ, but that salvation ultimately is being allowed to enjoy, the, to be allowed to share in the fellowship of the Trinity forever. That's salvation. That's what that is. The Father choosing some to inviting them to be a part of, of the love and the, the glory of the Trinity. And for all eternity, we will be caught in the crossfire of Trinitarian love forever. That's salvation. That's what election is about. So here's what I want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you seven features of unconditional election. I, 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 want to, I want us to see this from the Bible because, because although I am a, a great fan of John Calvin, I think the, the dude has written things and, and that are just so... I mean, there's a reason why John Calvin's writings have lasted over 500 years. Um, 500? 400. Um, there's a reason for that. Uh, is it five or 400? The Reformation? Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't know anything about the Reformation. Thank you, thank you. 500 years. I, I, I couldn't remember. 
Uh, but there's a reason why his writings have lasted, you know, that long. <laughs> uh, but in the end, who cares what John Calvin says? Let's look at what the text says, right? That's what we care about. So I want to give you seven features about election that you need to understand. Here it is. Number one, you need to know that an unconditional election was done in eternity past. It was done in eternity past. In other words, the election of individual souls was made in the stretches of eternity when the only thing that existed was God. That's when that happened. You see, our salvation was not some sort of last-minute roll of the dice like God, you know, sort of five minutes beforehand on the, on the back of a napkin kind of came up with this plan and rolled the dice like, ah, man, I really hope this works. No, I mean, it, this, was, this was carefully orchestrated before time. So I like to put it this way. As long as God has existed, which is always and forever, the elect had always been chosen. And there never was a time when they were not chosen. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So notice Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. It says this. But I think it's very interesting that Paul opens his letter talking about this doctrine. Just as, so verse 3 goes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Here it is. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So one of the blessings that we have in Christ is that we were chosen. If we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, what are they? Paul tells us the Father chose you. But when did he do so? Pra katabales kasmu, before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul writes, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God has chosen you, ap arches, from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. From the beginning. Meaning what? That's just a way of saying, look, before anything happened, and and what happened the day before creation, if you can explain it that way, and everything before that, that's the beginning. That's what he means. And then 2 Timothy 1.9 He says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Notice very carefully. Speaking about that grace, he says it was granted us when. What does it say? From all eternity. Literally, pra ionion. Uh, Chiron, I think it is, um, before eternal times. That's when we were given grace in Christ. That, that's when the decision was made to save you. The decision was made for you before eternal times. So election is an eternal act. It's an eternal act of God. Second feature, number two, 
election was a sovereign choice. It was a sovereign choice. In other words, who was chosen was a decision made by God alone. I mean, that, that's, that's foundational, it's simple, but it, it's key. That decision was made by God alone. In other words, God chose who he chose without our permission or our consent. We're really big on consent nowadays. You need my permission. God didn't ask permission. God chose who he chose without, without permission or consent. You see, election happened to you and not because of you. So his decision, I like to call it unilateral, that is one-sided, he alone made the decision, he chose who he chose. And, and we see this with the people of Israel, right? I mean, was there anything compelling about the people of Israel that made God go, wow, you know what, I have got to have you. Everything about you is just so irresistible, right? There, there was nothing like that. Listen to Deuteronomy 7. Moses is explaining to the people of Israel why God chose them. He says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. You were these slaves in Egypt. You were nobodies. But here's the other reason. Here's why the Lord chose you. Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of literally slaves from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Israel was purely the recipients of God's choice, right? It was one-sided. They were snatched up. They were chosen. Uh, Matthew uh, eleven twenty-five through 27. Matthew eleven twenty five through twenty seven. This is a really interesting text. The context of Matthew eleven comes at a time when Christ was receiving the sort of open hostility and, and opposition to to his ministry. A lot of people they were not loving what he was what he was selling, and, and there was just just open hostility. And yet, lest we get the idea that Christ's ministry was a failure, here's what he does: he begins to pray in front of the people who opposed him, and listen to the things he says. It's right in front of them. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you hid these things from the wise and understanding and you revealed them to infants. I mean, it's just in your face, the people. It's like, these people don't believe because you hid it from them. That's what he's saying. Yes, Father, because this was well-pleasing before you, all things were handed over to me by my Father. And, and listen very carefully to his language. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This is an, that's an incredible statement. So what he's saying is, if you know God, the only reason you do is because it was the sovereign prerogative of Jesus Christ to allow you to know him, period. I mean, how's that way? How's that way to, to you know, how's that for a way to, to uh, uh, combat your opposers? I know you don't believe in me and you want me dead, but I just want you to know the only reason why you hate me and the only reason why you don't believe is because God has not allowed you to believe. Wow, incredible. So we see um, 
Oh, and then 1 Thessalonians 1.4. Other texts I could use. But again, remember, we're talking about a sovereign choice. We are the recipients of the choice. 1 Thessalonians 1.4. Subtle but profound. Paul's talking to the Thessalonians. He says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. I love how Paul just inserts these massive theological things in the beginning of his letter. He doesn't even prepare them for it. Oh, by the way, God chose you. Moving on. Right? So we are the recipients of God's choice. It was a sovereign choice. It happened to us. Which brings us to the third feature of election. And again, uh, write down questions. If you got them, we're, we're going we're to get to those. So I'm not trying to hose you here. Third feature of election, number three, un, uh, unconditional election was, of course, unconditional. Election was unconditional. In other words, there were absolutely no pre-existing conditions about you that influenced God's choice of you. So neither who you would be, what you would do, nor even your future belief, if you were offered the gospel, even if that were the case, that was not a factor in God's choice of who believed. Rather, God is free from all human distinctives in determining who gets saved and who does not. Election is unconditional. In other words, you, didn't, there, you couldn't and you didn't need to do anything to be chosen. So again, we see this with Israel so clearly. I, I, also, on that note, I think it's interesting that, that many who, who struggle with the doctrine of election, they don't bat an eye that the same parallel things happen to the people of Israel. Right? Who was chosen? Israel? Or uh, who, who was chosen? Israel alone and not these other nations. Well, what happened to the other nations? Well, he only chose Israel. And, and we don't struggle with that as much for whatever reason, but I think Israel gives us a good sort of frame of reference. So look what he says, Deuteronomy 9, lecturing the, the people of Israel. Don't say in your hearts when the Lord your God has driven the nations out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord brought me in to possess the land. No, but it is because the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess the land, but it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So do you see what he's saying there? There was nothing about Israel that tipped the scales that made God go, you know what? Wow. Okay. I choose you. I, I, you win. There was nothing like that. It was unconditional, his choice. Uh, here's, a, here's another one. This is, this is a hairy text, but uh, I'll point out a few things. We'll look at it a couple times tonight. Romans 9. Romans 9. Should be in your notes. Romans 9, 11 through 16. And Romans 9, what, what Paul is doing is... He's doing a lot of things in Romans 9, but one of the things he is doing is defending the works and ways of God. And he's trying to explain to, to the Romans that, okay, well, God chose Israel, right? Yeah. Well, why, why does most of Israel reject God? That looks like God's plan has failed. And his thing is, no, 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 no. Even though most of Israel totally rejects God, it's not as though God's plan has failed. And the reason for that is because God has chosen particular souls from among Israel 
And so they will get saved. And so in the end, he's showing us like, look, God's plan will come to pass because uh, even though Israel is in total disbelief at this time, God has chosen some from among Israel. So in other words, he uses election as a way to show that God's plan has not failed. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but, but notice what he does here. He uses Jacob and Esau as a example, as a prototype of the way salvation works, as the way election works. Notice what he says. He says, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it has been written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So do you, do you remember the, the scenario here that, that's being described? Okay, so uh, Rebecca is born, uh, she's pregnant with twins, right? She's born with twins. And typically, well, in, in that culture, the uh, uh, sort of the inheritance of the father was passed down to which son? What's that? The oldest, the oldest right? And who, in this case, was going to be the oldest son? Esau, but God says, nope, nope, Jacob I choose. I choose Jacob to be the one. I choose Jacob to be the one. And there's this whole level of significance where he chooses Jacob and his whole family line to be the ones that he uses to unfold his plan out of which would come the Messiah. So there's this whole thing going on here. He's like, no, I I choose Jacob. And they're like, well, that doesn't work because you're supposed to choose Esau. Nope. That's a pre-existing condition, and God doesn't give a rip about that. Because again, the language is, they had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. It's about God's choice. And then he goes on to say things like, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, I have mercy and I have compassion on whoever I darn well please. And I am the one who, de- I am the one who determines who I will save and who I will not. That's, that's what he's saying. And therefore, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. In other words, it doesn't matter what you do to try to tip the scales in your favor. None of that essentially earns your way. What salvation depends on is the God who has mercy So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Salvation is a sovereign prerogative of God. Now, does that change anything about human responsibility? No. Does that change anything about people's accountability to to believe in Christ and, and repent? No. How does that work? I don't know. I don't make the rules. I just report the facts, right? All that stuff is still true. But what we see is that God's election is sovereign and it is unconditional. And then here's one of the best texts, clearest text, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Notice what he says here. For consider your calling, brethren. And by, me, by that he means your, your calling to salvation. That there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. But notice, God has chosen the What? the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the what? Weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. 
the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he choose the most unlikely of people to be the recipients of salvation? Why did he do that? So that no man may boast before God. (laughs) But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's election is an ironic election. Choosing the most unlikely people. Why us? Why us? I mean, we think if if we were in charge, we would, you know, we would save Brad Pitt. And maybe Brad Pitt, the actor, will still get saved. That'd be really great. We should pray for that. But we think, well, man, if I were in charge, I'd save Brad Pitt. I'd save the most famous, popular people because then they could have real influence. And sometimes that happens. But, but, but people's influence and popularity and success, what does God do? Hmm. That, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything to him. God chooses whom he will choose without any pre-existing conditions about them. It's incredible. Incredible stuff. He gives grace before time began. Which brings us to the fourth feature of election number four. Unconditional election is with righteous discrimination. I know discrimination is a naughty word nowadays, but it, it, it can be a neutral word. It can be a good word. Unconditional election is with righteous discrimination. And what, what I mean by that is God's election of particular souls is not some sort of like arbitrary, random, sort of haphazard, you know, kind of thing. Rather, uh, he, it was loving and wise and methodical selection of particular souls to be saved. In, in other words, by, by righteous discrimination, I simply mean he chooses some and not others, and he is intentional about that. Again, do we not see this with, with the people of Israel? Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. You, righteous, in particular, righteous discrimination, chosen you to be his own possession, notice what he says, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why not the Greeks? Why not the Egyptians? Why not the Arameans? Why not the Babylonians? Why not the Syrians? Or the, the Assyrians? Why not Australians? Why not the Native Americans? Why the Jews? I don't know. I don't know. Because God, his, he chose some and not others. And why he chose who he chose, that, that's his business. Deuteronomy 14.2, the same thing. Amos 3.2 is also interesting. I, I assume it's in your notes, but it says this. God speaking to Israel, he says, You only I have chosen among all the families of the earth. You only. You only, Israel, I have chosen. There's a lot of nations on the planet. I choose you. Righteous discrimination. We saw it with Matthew 11, right? Anyone who knows God is because the Son willed to reveal him to that person individual, that person in particular. Same thing with Romans 9, right? Why Jacob and not Esau? Why? Because God chooses with righteous discrimination. He chooses some and not others. Why? We'll get to that. Which actually brings us to the fifth feature of election. We're moving right along here. Number five, unconditional election was according to the sovereign good pleasure of God. And I love this. Election was according to the sovereign good pleasure 
of God. In other words, what we have here is one of the deepest reasons revealed in the Bible for why God chose whom he chose. Because isn't that the kind of question, like the, the rock in the shoe and the, the, the splinter under the skin that kind of gets us? Like, okay, now, well, all right, I, maybe I can get a handle on that God chose something, but why did he choose whom he chose? Why did he do that? And the answer comes back. In fact, I think the deepest answer, one of the deepest answers in the Bible is that why he chose whom he chose was simply because it brought him pleasure to choose whom he chose. It, it brought him pleasure. It, it, was, it was his joy to choose whom he chose. It pleased God to exercise his own sovereign will. You see, there, there are no external influences upon God that force him to do anything he doesn't want to do. There are, no, there are no constraints that exist outside of his own will. No, he, he was not forced or coerced to choose anyone, but he delighted to choose whom he chose. That, that's one of the deepest reasons. So at night, when you lay your head on the pillow and you're looking up at the ceiling, why did God choose me? The answer comes back because it brought him great pleasure. And that's incredible, isn't it? Because I don't know how you feel, but I sometimes feel like, man, God has got to have buyer's regret with me. It's like, ah, I mean, really? Me? I mean, this is really, you know, on, on, my best, on my worst days, I think I'm pretty awesome and incredible. But then when I'm faced with my sin, I'm like, oh, geez, I don't, what was God thinking? This was really bad call, man, bad call. And, and, and yet... What we have to do at the end of the day is, okay, why, God? Why me? Because it brought him great pleasure. It brought him pleasure to choose you. Why? Because that's who God, that's who God is. Again, notice Deuteronomy 7. This is really incredible. The Lord did not set his love on you. He's talking to Israel. Nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people's. But for you were the fewest of all peoples. Now, here's what he's going to do. He's going to give the reason and explanation for why God set his love on them and chose them. Here's why he did that. Because the Lord loved you. That's why. Why did God set his Israel, God set his love upon Israel? Because he loved them. That's why. The Lord loved you because he chose to love you. <laughs> it's incredible. This is incredible. What a, and that's the perfect paradigm for us. Notice in, in Matthew uh, 11, again, perfect text, when Christ is explaining why some believe and why some don't, why some believe in God and why some don't, notice, notice in verse 26, yes, Father, the reason why some do believe and why some don't is because why? This was well pleasing in your sight. This was well pleasing of the Lord to do it this way. Notice Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. How? Why? According to the good pleasure of his will. Why did God choose you? Because it brought him what? Say it. Pleasure. It brought him pleasure. It brought him great pleasure. Eudakia. In the Greek, great pleasure. He chose you because he chose to love you. It's incredible. Sixth feature of election. Sixth feature of election. We've got two more. This one and another one. Then I've got some other issues to, to deal with here. And this is a long one. 
But unconditional election was the singling out and selection of a particular of particular individual souls and not a general mass of humanity. So some people will say, well, okay, I'll grant you that God chooses and elects, but he doesn't select individuals. He, he selects, okay, Christ, God chose the church and then anyone who gets saved, they become the elect because what God chose was the elect. It's kind of a, it's kind of a funky deal and I don't really understand all the ins and outs of it, but generally it's saying that God chose an overall kind of mass of humanity instead of particular souls. And that just doesn't work. That just doesn't work because Old Testament and New Testament, sure, God chose Israel, a a people group, but Romans 9 makes very very clear that, that even within Israel, there were particular ones that were chosen. Just because you were a Jew was, did not guarantee your salvation because there were particular Jews within Israel that God had chosen. But notice, things like this, Jeremiah 1.5. Speaking to Jeremiah, and he says, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. What's my point? My point is God is very particular. God is very particular in whom he chooses and what he chooses them for. Matthew 11, same thing. Um, He he says, uh, uh, oh yeah, notice, notice verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And look, no one, no one, Udes. He's talking about individuals there. No one person knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone, talking about individuals, know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Do you see? This is, this is, this is an individual thing. Notice this. Acts 13.48 the Jews kind of dug their heels in to, to Paul and whoever was preaching with them. I can't remember who it was at the time. And they're just kind of, you know, they're heckling Paul and they're really being difficult. And Paul goes, okay, fine. You know what? Fine. You, you, you don't want this? You don't want salvation? You don't want, you don't want the gospel? Fine. Gentiles, come here. Come here. And he calls the Gentiles over and he preaches to the Gentiles and, and some among them believe. And notice what it says, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, i.e. the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Here it is. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Notice, footnote here, notice that it doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It doesn't say that, does it? It says as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. They were chosen first. They were appointed first and then they believed later as a result of being appointed. But here's my point. That phrase, as many as that refers to individuals. That, that construction refers to individual, particular, specific people. People who are appointed for salvation, it's individuals. Again, we see the same thing with Romans 9, Jacob and Esau, 2 Timothy 2.10, and, and then here's my favorite one, uh, Revelation 5.9. It's not in your notes, but, but listen, to what it, listen to what it says here. Revelation 5.9. It talks about who... Christ died for. 
And it's that great scene in the throne room of heaven. And, and everybody's singing their hearts out here. And it says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, lamb, O lamb, to take the book and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain and you ransomed, purchased for God with your blood, get this, some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He didn't, he didn't purchase every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He purchased some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Individuals. Individuals. And then, I think it really becomes a slam dunk when you look at Revelation 13.8. Revelation 13.8, when it talks about people whose individual names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Individual names inscribed in a book. And these are the people for whom Christ would die. And we know that because that's the, t- the title of the book is The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. Meaning what? Meaning the Father chose them, wrote their names in the book. These are the ones for whom the Son will die. These people in particular. Names, individual names. So it's individuals who were chosen. And then finally, the seventh feature. Number seven, unconditional election means that individual souls were chosen in particular to receive salvation in Christ. They were chosen to be saved. So my my emphasis here is, you know, God's election had a point. People were chosen, individual people were chosen in Christ. Individual people were chosen in relation to Christ. In other words, people were chosen to be saved by the death of Christ. They They were chosen for a purpose, to be purchased and paid for by the Son. Because notice again, Acts 13, 48. Um, it says that as many as had been appointed to what? What had these people been appointed to? What does it say? Eternal life, right? So I know I'm, I'm, I'm belaboring the point, and it's super obvious, but my, my point is, is that God's election was specifically for the goal of having them get saved by Christ, appointed to eternal life. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Notice this, just as he, that is the Father, chose us, notice what it says, in him. What does that mean? The the Father chose us in him. The Father chose us in Christ. What, What does that mean? It means that our election was in relation to Christ, meaning we were chosen to be saved by Christ. That's what he means. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 God chose you from the beginning for what? For salvation. That's what. Revelation 13.8 again. Notice, everyone whose name written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The title of the book indicates what they, why they were there, why they exist. They were, they were chosen to be purchased by the Lamb. That is the purpose of it. Again, that's simple, that's basic, it's, it's obvious. But nevertheless, it is so crucial and important. Okay, so let me do this. Let me uh, talk about the purpose of election, why God did it this way, and then we'll take a break, okay? All right, so... Uh, and again, keep saving up questions if you, if you have them. 
So part four, I think it is, the purpose of unconditional election. In other words, what I want to ask is, okay, why did God do it this way? I mean, this seems kind of, I mean, this just has been wreaking havoc in church history for centuries, right? This whole thing that God chooses some, not others, and some people just flat out don't like it, and it causes controversy and, and all sorts of things and arguments and division, right? So why did God do it this way? Well, the Bible has an answer for that. The Bible has a reason and an explanation for why God did it this way. And why God did it this way is this. Listen carefully. God chose people to be saved so that it would be clear and unmistakable that the surpassing power belongs to him and him alone. Which makes sense, right? The the genius of election is that it makes really clear that we had nothing to contribute to our own salvation. Right? It makes it really clear. There's no mistaking it that like, ah, you know, this the choice of me happened before eternal times. What was, what was I going to do? I mean, I, you know, so in the end, it's so that in the end, we don't have, you know, we're not all walking around in heaven with portfolios and say, well, you know, here's why God chose me, <laughs> you know, pretty amazing. And, you know, we're kind of flashing our credentials of, of, and our achievements of how incredible we are. No election secures his glory. It secures his glory. That's why. He does it so that for all eternity, we could say, worthy is the lamb and really, really mean it. Romans 9, we see that the purpose of God choosing was so that notice, I think it's maybe it's underlined in yours, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. That's why. God chose who he chose so that it would be really clear that he is the one that did the choosing and that we had nothing to contribute to our own salvation. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, remember that? that? That God chose the foolish things, God chose the weak things, God chose the base things, the despised things, the things that are not so that he, he may nullify the things that are. Why? Why did he choose? And why did he choose the people that he did? What's the explanation? What's the reason? What's the purpose of this? So that not one single person for all eternity could ever boast. How much boasting will there be in heaven? Zero. Zero. Because God chose whom he chose and it was clear that he is the one who did the choosing. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Notice what he says. Just as he chose us in him, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Here it is. Here's the purpose. Here's why God did it like this. To the praise of of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. There's the answer. So according to Paul in Ephesians 1, why did God did it this way? Why? What is the ultimate definitive purpose and explanation for why God chooses people? What's the, what's the reason? What reason does Paul give? Praise of his glory. The praise of of his glory, and then he adds another word, of his grace, right? That's why. 
That's why. So that all, for all eternity, we would marvel not just at God's glory, but that we would marvel at the glory of His grace. Singing will never grow wearisome. We will be so overwhelmed. Singing, by the way, is not the only thing we'll do forever. That weird portrait of heaven that people give. Well, we'll be singing forever. It'll be, it'll be fantastic, but that's not all, that's not all we're going to do. But we will marvel at God's glory forever and ever. Okay, so those are the seven features of election, and that's why God chose. God chose who he did for his glory. So let's, let's do this. Why don't you stand up, stretch your legs, go ahead and grab more snacks. I'll give you, oh, how about seven minutes. I don't know why, I'm just picking that number. Maybe that's, that's, the, that's the magic number. Seven minutes, stand up, stretch your legs, and then we'll be back, and then we'll, we'll launch again for part two, okay? All right, so we, we are close to being done here. I've got one, two, oh, maybe, maybe a couple more sections, and we'll finish with some implications, then some questions, okay? All right, so uh, I want to talk now about uh, election and personal responsibility. Election and personal responsibility. Because uh, wouldn't you agree that, that one of the things that makes this a a, a tricky issue to figure out is, okay, how does, how does God's choosing people to be saved, how does this harmonize, how does this, um, that's what I'm looking for, how does this, uh, uh, c- can this work together with personal responsibility, right? Isn't that the issue? You know, if God chooses who, will cho- who he'll choose, it's like, well, because I've, I've had it, the, the objection leveled to me. Uh, compatibility, that's what I'm asking. You know, is election compatible with personal responsibility? Because I've had people ask me, it's like, well, okay, if that's true, that people chooses people for salvation, then it doesn't matter what people do. You know, it's like, well, it doesn't, if someone doesn't believe, well, then if no one shares the gospel, then what does it matter? Because they're going to get saved anyway. Or you don't have to share the gospel. In fact, we were at a dinner one time, and there was a lady that said, oh, yeah, well, you know, you don't have to share the gospel with people like and she meant it's like a good thing. Like, what? What are you saying? Um, and so, so here's the issue. And, and, and let me say a word about free will. I can't remember if I said anything about this before. But people ask about free will. Here's, here's I think, a helpful thing for me about free will. Uh, when someone says, well, what about free will? I say, well, it depends on what you mean by free will. It depends on what you mean by free will. Well, don't people have free will? Well, I don't know. It depends on what you mean. Define what you mean. Because if you mean by free will that people have a sort of sovereign, autonomous power over their lives to make decisions that either A, God doesn't know about, or B, God cannot interfere with at all. He just has to wait for you, hands tied behind his back, to, for you to act. And then he makes the best out of the decision and weaves some sort of kind of magical thing and makes it all turn out in the end. If that's what someone means by free will, like your sovereign, autonomous power to make decisions that God can't even do anything about, if that's what you mean, then no, that's not in the Bible. That, that is a completely foreign concept to the Bible. It's just not in the text anywhere. I don't know if that's what most people mean. I think some version of that. If you mean by free will that people have moral responsibility and real accountability for their actions and that they do make actual real choices out of the overflow of their hearts, well, then yes, 
okay, I don't particularly want to call it free will, but if, if that's helpful for you, so long as you mean that, okay, that's in the Bible. Because according to Bible, the Bible, do people make real choices? Yes. Are people fully responsible for the decisions they make? Yes. Will people be held accountable for the decisions they make? Yes. Right? So all that's in the Bible, so long as we understand what we mean by, by free will. So what, what I think is a better way to say it is people have full responsibility and accountability for all of the actions and the choices that they make. And every choice that people make is out of the overflow of who they are. Um, so we have to say this, is that God is sovereign in such a way that does not minimize anybody's personal responsibility. I think we just have to, we have to, now that's, we have to toe the line. We have to walk the knife, the theological knife edge. God is sovereign over salvation in such a way that does not lessen, minimize, mitigate uh, anybody's personal responsibility or accountability. Well, how does that work? I don't know. I don't know. It's like a, it's like a Venn diagram that doesn't intersect, right? Here's God's sovereignty. Here's man's responsibility. It doesn't seem like they intersect. Biblically, they do. They're compatible. It works. Um, so, so here's the thing, and this, this will be a quick section, but there are three things that election does not change. Three, three things that election does not change. Number one, election changes nothing. Nothing about our personal responsibility to obey and pursue holiness. Not a thing. N- nothing changes. Some people will try to level it. Well, if you're chosen, you can do, live any way you want. Who says that? The Bible doesn't say that. That's not at all. In fact, our election guarantees that we will live increasingly obedient lives. If we're truly elect, we will grow and we will be different and we will be changed slowly, painfully, agonizingly, but change nevertheless. So it's a long section, but, but listen to this. Second Peter 1, or yeah, Second Peter 1, 3 through 11. It was very interesting. Um, where do I start? Do I start in verse 10? Yeah, start in verse 10. If I, is that text in your notes? Okay, look at verse 10. And then, and then I'll explain, we'll look at the context. Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Notice what he does. Make certain that you are called and chosen. Uh, how do I do that? Make certain. You better make sure that you're called and chosen. Okay, well, notice the context, starting at the beginning. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, notice this. Notice what he does. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Pursue moral excellence, he says. 
Lost my place. Uh, And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. Be self-controlled people. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. Be godly people, he says. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. Love people for crying out loud. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that'll make you really effective. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Do you see the connection that he's making there? So someone tell me, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here, but what's the connection between the list of all of these virtues that you should pursue and his command to make certain about your election? What's he doing there? It's kind of a thorny question, but, but, but give it a whirl. What's the connection between those two things? Pursue these things, make certain that you're chosen. What's his point? The signs of life. Be certain that you see these things in your life because if you are chosen, you will what? Pursue these things. You will display these things. Do you see? You see, election is not permission to live any way we darn well please. Election is the guarantee that our lives will be changed and transformed. However slow and painful and increasingly slow and steady that may be over the years, you know, that's the way it is. So in other words, if one is truly chosen, their life will display authentic life change and transformation. And I don't see anything in the text that would make, you know, make it sound like that our personal responsibility is lessened. In fact, make certain that you're elect. How? By pursuing these things. That doesn't get you elect. It displays that you have been elected. Do you see? The second thing, election doesn't change. Election changes nothing about our personal responsibility to evangelize. It changes nothing. Because here's the thing about how God does things. He, he has not only designed the ends, but the means to those ends. Does that make sense? So not only the ends, but the means to those ends. So look at 2 Timothy 2.10. This is, this is an incredible text. And in, in the letter to 2 Timothy, where was Paul when, when he was writing this letter? Where was he? He was in prison Right? And it was actually his second imprisonment. So the first imprisonment was the house arrest thing. Not too bad, not great. Uh, but he got released, went out and did some missionary work. The Caesar's like, okay, I've had enough of this guy. Bring him in, and this is the end of him. So they brought him to the Mamertine prison in, in Rome, which I have seen. And it's this ugly, really dark thing underground. And somehow he got access to a pen and paper, composed this letter, this inspired letter. He was sitting there in prison. You know, uh, an axe head is about to, the, the axe is being sharpened for his execution as he's writing this, so to speak. Notice what he says. On account of this, I endure all things on account of the elect. Why? In order that they, may, they themselves may obtain 
the salvation in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Do do you see what he does there? I endure all things. I endure this suffering for the elect in order that they would obtain salvation. Do, Do you see what he's saying? He's talking about elect people who are not yet saved. And yet they will be saved. That's who he's talking about here. They're not yet saved, but they will be saved. I endure this, this gospel ministry, this suffering. I endure this so that they may be saved. So it's a both and. It's not either or, it's both and. There are those chosen, and yet the means to them getting chosen is the courageous and compassionate proclamation of the gospel. And then finally, the third thing, that election does not change. Election changes nothing about people's personal responsibility to repent and believe. It changes nothing. It doesn't change anything. You know, when you're talking with an unbeliever, you know, and and it's like, you know, I don't really want to share the gospel with them, and, you know, they're going to get saved anyway. No, no, they have to hear the gospel. And if they reject, you know, and again, you don't know that they're elect. In fact, that's not even your concern in that moment. But it changes nothing about people's responsibility to repent and believe. And, and so what you should do, you know, since you don't know the cards, God is holding the cards, you call people, always call people to repent and believe that those are the terms, right? So those are the three things that election does not change. Personal responsibility to obey and pursue holiness. Number two, doesn't change anything about the responsibility to evangelize. Doesn't change anything about the responsibility to repent and believe. And It pleases God when we talk about a son. Is that what you said? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and why wouldn't we, right? We should and we must. Yeah, well said, well said. Well, I've got one particularly long section that I, I think I'm just going to skip. And I want to go straight to some implications because I want to have time for some, for some questions. So I don't know what page it is for you, but part eight, what do we do with unconditional election and why should we embrace it? What do we do with election and why should we embrace it? I won't give you all these. I think I have 11 applications. Uh, I'll just give you a, a handful. So here's why election matters. Number one, number one. And you could, you could tell that I have a, a profoundly doxological or worship-centered orientation to this. Like, this should move us to worship. So, speaking of, number one, we need to let unconditional election clobber us into worship. This needs to clobber us into worship because, feel this now, had God not chosen you, you would have never believed and been saved. It's period. I mean, that's a hard pill to swallow. I know that's tough. And again, I just report the facts, ma'am. I don't don't make the rules here. I'm just, uh, I would just point out the text. Had God not chosen you, you would have never believed and been saved. And and this this should catapult us into worship. I think it's very interesting that in Ephesians 1, Paul's talking about election while giving a eulogy. Not, thing, not a thing at a funeral, but, but, he's, but he's exulting in God. I think it's very interesting that that great doxology at the, at the end of Romans 11, remember that? Oh, the depth of riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable uh, are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And, and he just has this, this exulting in God. That's a response to the sovereign work of God in salvation history. So it should force us, clobber us into worship. Number two, Election should lead us to an overpowering sense that our lives are not our own, that we exist for the glory of another. 
like, like election should drive us to that, to remember that, that I'm not here. I, I do not exist to have a big deal made about me. It's not about me. And case in point example of that is that I was chosen by God for his glory. That is good for us. That is so rehabilitative to the 21st century soul, so obsessed with ourselves and what we see in the mirror. Number three, we should embrace unconditional election because it is in the Bible and thus it is true. And because it is true, it is precious, right? Just believe it because it's in the Bible. It's not exactly what I'm saying, but if it's in the Bible, we just have to take God at his word that it is good for us. Um, Here's another one. Uh, Number four, we should feel the freedom to, to passionately embrace election as true, even despite the fact that people smarter than us and who have more degrees than us and more education than us have debated this issue for centuries. So please don't be paralyzed by indecision or, or you know, intimidated over people who are smarter than you who disagree about this issue. You can believe what the text says. I know people debate about it. You know, you know my response to that is? Mm-mm. I don't care. It's in the text. I don't, I don't mean that at all arrogantly. It's what the text says. And I'm sure I know there's all sorts of arguments. And, and it's like, but, but it's, it's not arrogant to take a doctrinal position, even a dogmatic one. This is in the text. And you can, you can, there is a way, I'll put it this way, there is a way to contend for the truth without being contentious about the truth. That's what we should be. We should be those kind of people. Contend for the truth without being contentious uh, about it. Because here's the thing, this, this is helpful for me. A widespread and long-held doctrinal difference among Christians does not mean that we can't take a stand on an issue. It's, you can and you should. It's okay. Because I think about, here's a historical example. Do we have time for this? Maybe, maybe not. In the third century, fourth century, there was this uh, theological debate about the nature of Christ, right? Remember what the issue was? What was the issue in the, in the, in the fourth century? Arianism. Arianism. It was Christology, right? It was about the person of Christ. Is he God or is he a created being? I just want you to know that in that day, most of the, the world where Christianity had been exposed, most of that area were Arian. They believed that Christ was a created being and not God. Most of the world. That's really bad. This one guy named Athanasius stands up and says, that's not what the text says. The whole world was against him. Most people did not believe that Jesus Christ was God. This was a terrible thing. And people, you can imagine what people would say, look, Athanasius, people have been debating the nature of Christ for 200 years. Who do you think you are? Sit down and, you know, people smarter than you have debated about this. And, and yet he remained unmoved because it was in the text. We should feel the freedom also. Number whatever, I don't know if I'm keeping track. Here's another, here's another one. Um, uh, we should embrace unconditional election because it's designed to make us humble designed to make us humble. So an arrogant Calvinist is a contradiction in terms, right? Anyone who holds to the doctrines of grace, you know, they, they should be the humblest people in the world. I am not that. But, but, that, but if we're consistent with our theology, it should make us humble people, right? Because why did God choose you? Because you were awesome? No. No. Did, did you win God over and, and, you know, win him over with your charm? No. Categorically did not do that. He chose you in Christ before the ages began. That is inherently humbling and that is good for us. Uh, Here's another one. Um, 
we should embrace unconditional election as good news because it is our guarantee that we can never finally be lost or condemned. You see, unconditional election has implications, ramifications for the future, right? If, you know, the, the phrase once saved, always saved, that's true, but it doesn't go far enough. It's not precise enough. It leaves out the whole part in the middle of perseverance and, and trusting and clinging to Christ. But, but one of the implications of election is that if we are chosen for salvation in Christ, thereby that automatically means that our salvation is secure. We're going to make it. That doesn't mean there's not responsibility to persevere in the middle, but it's a guarantee that we will persevere to the end. Number 10. We should embrace unconditional election because God has made it a powerful moral impetus for compassion, kindness, and forgiveness. In other words, people who are chosen should be compassionate, kind, and forgiving. We should be the most compassionate, kind, and forgiving people in the world. Because did you, have you ever noticed Colossians 3, 12 through 13? Look what he says. Put on, therefore, as what? As the chosen of God. See what he does there? He just, he just roots that in there and gives a theological reason for why we could be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient people. Put on, therefore, as the chosen of God, holy and beloved, Literally, in the Greek text, the bowels of compassion, the guts of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, forgiving each other. So no one who has truly seen and savored election can help but be moved to extend kindness and compassion and forgiveness to people. It should cause us to be those kinds of people. Number 11, and I'll finish with this. We should embrace unconditional election. Because rather than discourage evangelism, it is that designed to produce invincible passion for evangelism. So when people say, if you believe in election, it kills evangelism, I say it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. If you really understand the doctrine, if you really understand what the Bible says, you see, election, get this now, does not make our evangelism meaningless it guarantees that our evangelism cannot fail. Do you see? It doesn't make it meaningless. It guarantees that it cannot fail. God has his elect in every tribe and tongue and nation and people. So what we do is indiscriminately proclaim the gospel to everyone and let him do the work. Do you see? It's a can't lose. It's a can't lose scenario. It's incredible. So the guarantee that the Great Commission will get done is election. So I like to think about election this way. The universe, and in relation to evangelism, I think about it like this. The universe is God's theater. The church is the stage. The word of God is the script. Christ is the main attraction on center stage. And you are the ushers bringing in God's elect. And when the seats are filled at the end of the age, oh, what a standing ovation there will be. Okay, more could be said. You ready for questions? Ready for this? All right, all right, what's, what's the damage here? Hey, well done, well done. No memes, no, uh, no uh, spam thingies. Okay, uh, so I'll take these. Yeah, right, yeah, send one of those. All right, hey, I know this person. 
Uh, so the question was, if Israel was elect, why was, why was each person within the nation of Israel not elect? If Israel was elect, why was each person within Israel within the nation of Israel, not elect? Do you understand the question? It's a great question. And in, fa- in fact, Paul deals with that very issue in Romans 9 through 11. And the reason why, the, the reason Paul gives in Romans 9 through 11 is because he wants, to know, he wants everyone to know that even though Israel was chosen by God to be his special people on the earth, that even within Israel, there was a particular number of Israelites chosen for eternal salvation. And his point is, is that he wanted people to know that ethnicity, that Israelite ethnicity was not the thing that, that made them elect. Ethnicity was not the only issue. He chose them to be his special people, but he wanted them to know that just being an Israelite didn't make you an automatic shoe-in for eternal salvation, right? So that's, that's his issue. So he discriminates even, even with, within them. The person who I know quite well, does, does that answer questions? <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, so, uh, it's a good question. Uh, if we were chosen from eternity past, what is the point of the here and now? If we were chosen from eternity past, what is the point of the here and now? Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's a great question. I think there's many, many levels and, and aspects to that answer. The, and this probably isn't exactly what you mean, so come talk to me afterwards if, I'm, if I missed the boat on this. The, the point of the here and now is that we are to be a peculiar, a distinct, a unique, and, and set-apart people who, as a corporate body, display the glory of Christ to the world. Right, So the church is the stage. The church is the, the instrument through which God displays his glory to the world. So our purpose as elect people is to radiate and manifest his glory. In fact, you could put it this way. 1 Peter 2.9 says this. It says, But you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you, so he's giving the explanation. Why does it matter here and now? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's the point of the here and now, is that we are to be declarers and displayers and exhibitors of his excellencies by word and by deed. So let me know afterwards if that's not scratching the itch. From a friend. I love this. Um, uh, better than an enemy. From an enemy. You scum. All right. Uh, from a friend. Why didn't God choose everyone? And why do I get angry that he didn't? Oh. Wow, good question. So why didn't God choose everyone? You know, in answer to the question, you know, the, the answer is both simple and complex at the same time. It's, it's easy yet profound all at once. Uh, The reason why God chose some and not everyone, Paul makes clear in in Romans 9. His aim there is to indicate, is, well, okay, I'm going to say something that's going to kind of rock your dome here. It's going to kind of rock your world here. In the end, the ultimate reason why some are chosen and not others, according to, I believe, Romans 9, is because in so doing that, in so choosing some and not others, in the end, 
when all of history is over, the full panorama and spectrum of God's attributes will be displayed. Both his love and mercy towards sinners and both his wrath, uh, 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 wrath and severity toward those who were not chosen. So the reason why some were chosen and not others is because in the end, it gives the full display of his manifold perfections, the full panorama of his perfections. You see, the most loving thing that God could give us is himself in the full display of his glory. And the way his glory is most fully, clearly, conspicuously displayed is if all of his attributes are displayed, not just some of them. So I believe that's the answer that Romans 9 gives, basically in the end, because it displays his glory in a clear and distinct way that otherwise could not have been done. Now, that's, that's rocky, right? That's crazy. And yet I believe that's what the text says. You know, that, that's one of those mysteries of God that we just go, how does that work? I don't know. I don't know. I I didn't write the blueprints. I'm just glad to be a part of them. And the second question is to that is, why do I get angry that he didn't? Why do I get angry that God didn't choose everyone? Boy, that's a a good question. Um, You know, there could be any number of reasons. You know, um, usually, usually uh, people's feeling of injustice at people who are not chosen usually has to do that they have too high of a view of man. Usually it's that they have a view of human beings that are too high, that they think that man is still entitled to something, that, you know, that they deserve something from God other than judgment, and they, and they don't. And so that could be the reason. I, I've noticed that in, in my experience that most hostility and opposition to the doctrine comes from the fact that people just think that humans are, are they still believe that there's something about humans that are in, inherently good and, and that, well, how could God do that? That's not fair of God. No, no, no. You know, God can do with what he pleases with the people that he has made. And, and you know, and so, um, so that might be a ra- reason why this friend of a friend um, uh, gets angry that, that God hasn't chosen everyone. Anyway, maybe that's persuasive too. Maybe it's not. Um, All right, here's a good one. Uh, We agonize a lot of times about our loved ones who have passed that we didn't get to share the gospel with. This doctrine of unconditional election should make me feel a little better, uh, make me feel a little better that really God had decided their fate from the very beginning. Whether I see my loved one in heaven or not, uh, since it is God who chose him or not, there is nothing that I could have otherwise done. Please comment. Okay, do you understand the, the thing? So, uh, you know, a family member that, was die- that has died, you didn't get to share the gospel with them. You know, does this provide a sense of comfort, um, you know, in some way that God had decided their fate from the beginning? So whether I see them or not, you know, does this doctrine help? Uh, yes, yes, it, and no, it, it does. Um, I don't know if no, it doesn't, but it, it certainly does. Um, so, so here's the here's the tension. That's a good question, and, and it's in, it's you know street level real life stuff. You know, obviously, you know, just because God chooses doesn't mean that we have to or should feel any less agony on this side of heaven about lost people perishing and going to hell. 
right? It, it doesn't change the agony and, and the grief that we should feel in one sense, right? I mean, we have hope and we don't have to, you know, pull our hair out. If I had any, I, you know, I don't have any, so I, I can't do that. But, you know, it, you know, election does not have to and should not erase the grief that we should feel over lost people perishing, right? We should still feel agony over that. It doesn't change anything about the, the emotion and response of like, oh man, I just, that, that's, that's, that's horrible. You know, like my dad, my biological dad is in hell right now. That, that's a crazy thought. He's there and he's always going to be there forever and ever and ever. I mean, if, if every grain of sand on the planet counted for a million years, he will have been there longer than that. That's a, that's a sobering thought. And we should feel that. We should feel that. Now, now, the other side of that is that we go, you know, especially if you're like, I did what I could. I just humanly couldn't get to them. And they died without the gospel. It's like, man, well, you know what? In the end, there is great comfort in the fact that, that God is in control. There, there is comfort in that. And that in heaven, you know, we will declare the perfect wisdom of God, knowing that he chose whom he chose, knowing, okay, it doesn't change any of our responsibility to share the gospel with people now, but knowing in the end God is sovereign and in control. So I don't know if that helps. Uh, I may have made that more fuzzy than it needed to, but it's a, it's a good question because it, it deals with tensions of life. Okay, last question. Good, ah, yes. Uh, how is election compatible with texts like 1 Peter 2.4? Ah, yes. Okay, 1 Peter 2.4. Turn there if you like. If not, no problem. I'll read it. What did I say? Oh, my apologies. Yes, yes. It, it says, 1 Timothy 2.4, this person, this person who is a female, who is sitting right there, got it right. Okay, First um, Timothy two four, uh, it uh, says, talking about, you know, catching a mid sentence. Paul's talking about that you know we should live a quiet life in godliness and dignity, uh, for this is good and acceptable before God our Savior. Verse four, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I'll add, I'll, I'll, I'll meet your 1 Timothy 2.4 and I'll add 2 Peter 3.9 which says that God desires all to come to repentance and to the, and to the knowledge of the truth. How, does this, how is this compatible with the doctrine of election? It seems like the Bible's conflicted. It's not. Here's how this works. The emotional life of God and the ways of God are extremely complex, right? God is who he is, and we are just pretty simple people. So we have to at least give God credit that, that both of these things can be true, and they are. So the way we resolve the tension is this way. There is a level of God's complexity where in one sense he truly does desire all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Because if God were not that way, wouldn't that kind of make him like malicious and kind of mean-spirited? And, well, I, don't want to, I don't like you. I don't want to save you. I mean, that, that's not who he is. There is, a, there is one legitimate level of the complexity of God where he legitimately does 
desire and and wish all people to experience salvation. And and the gospel message is indiscriminately offered to everybody. On the other hand, there is another level of God's complexity where only those whom he has chosen will get saved. Can both be true? They have to be. They have to be. Because in the same letter, in 1 Timothy, Paul talks about election. It has to be. In the same letter, Peter talks about election. So what he's talking about there, you know, there are different levels of the complexity of God, and he legitimately does desire all, but not in the same way that he desires the elect to be saved. That's crazy. Can I make heads or tails of that? That's what the text says. That's what's there. And what it does say is speak to the heart of God, right? God loves people. He loves sinners. And, um, and, and he, his ways are complex and his ways are not ours. I don't know if that helps. Um, are, are there any other final questions that you feel gutsy enough to ask out loud? I don't want to leave anyone hanging here. Yeah, please. I didn't have my phone. That's all right. Hmm. You almost have to ask them to define who the sovereign one true God is. Yeah. It's, I mean, you have the other places to go because if you don't have if you don't have the definition of who God is, then you're worshiping an idol. Therefore, there would be no election because of exactly what you just said. Yeah. You have two yeah. 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 So your question is again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when you've been having the conversation for a while, you know. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's 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 a good question, and this may not scratch your itch. I think what you could do is, you know, you you could do a, a couple different things to to help people, because I think one of the things that helps people grasp a hold of election is is not just that you talk only about this issue, but give them a a biblical worldview. Right, so to take a step back, and you could just say, and I don't know if this is the exact kind of scenario you're talking about. It's like, look, okay, I know you're hang-ups with election. Okay, I get that, and it seems weird to you. And okay, but you know, let's just take a step back, and let's let's look at who the Bible says God is, and let's look at His attributes. And then after you do that, and go through Isaiah 40, and you know, you go through these just just staggering texts, you could you could very rightly uh, take them through a tour of the depravity of man. And, and you, can, you can lead them through the horrifying corridors of the nature of man and how wicked man is and really take them to the dirty underbelly of what the Bible says the human heart really is. And, and you, know, you know, just present them, look, this is who the Bible says we are. Right? This is horrifying stuff. And, and those two contrasts, the, the heights of God's supremacy and the depths of man's depra- de- depravity, that's a good biblical worldview presentation that I think, I think, if, if they're really going to look to this as their authority, and they should, if they're going to be consistent with their claim that this is their authority, they should be able to say, despite the fact that it might not 
fit with the, that might not make sense to them logically, they have to at least go, you know what? I see that's who God is. I see that's who I am. I don't understand all of God's ways, but um, if what the Bible says about my depravity is true, which is what I think you just said, then it, it, God would have had to have chosen me to be saved because, because the, the Bible makes really clear, I was never going to choose God. Is that kind of what you were thinking? And can I add one more? Please. Right, yeah. Therefore, you can't have belief in God without the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I'm not choose God. Yeah. Accept him. He pricks my heart and dwells in me. Totally. Brought to me a wisdom of who he is and a scripture has grown in me. Right. Right. And and I think that's a helpful thing to add to the mix too. That is all true. Yeah, add that. Add throw that in the mix. That's that's a that's a great thing to ask add to the 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 conversation because to to see what God had to do in the moment to awaken us from the dead, i.e. the miracle of regeneration. I mean, that's the thing that, that people will also struggle with because, you know, you look at, uh, what is it, 1 Corinthians 2.14, for the natural man, like unbelievers, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot accept them because he is spiritually appraised. Romans 8, 6, uh, for uh, the natural, the, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God and it is not even able to subject itself to the law of God. His point is saying unbelievers, they can't submit to God even if they wanted to. Whoa, hold on, hold on. So he's just talking about our nature is so corrupt uh, as, as unbelievers, that it requires a miracle. That doesn't lessen the, the responsibility to repent and believe. Repent and believe, unbeliever. And yet, that's the means that God uses to awaken people. But, you know, we, we need to lay the boom on them and say, look, the New Testament is really clear. A miracle has to be done in people for them to believe and be saved. God is supreme. Man is totally depraved. A miracle's got to happen to get you saved. And I think that's a good... Not I think. That is the biblical worldview to present to people. And, you know, they may not like it, but if they're going to claim the text as their authority, they got to, you know, they got to bow the knee. You know, I don't know if that's what you were going for. Does that help a little bit? It's a good question. Because that's, that's real life. That's, that's real conversations with people. Right? So that's, we're going to have those things. Yeah? Another real conversation is we... As children sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Then we come to the text that says, Jesus hated Esau. We go, wow. And we say, is that the same kind of hate? Like, I hate liver? Or is that a different kind of hate? Yeah. That's that's a good good question. Uh, So you want me to, what do you want me to explain? (laughs) Liver? I, I hate liver too. In fact, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it seems contrary to the very character of God. Yeah. And so um, I, I would like to have a better understanding to help someone else understand it, but I don't have to if there's if it's impossible. Yeah. Well, I, I think the answer is this. I, I'm not super persuaded that YA apostrophe LL are going to like it. Um, uh, you know, I think... 
the, the, the text is clear, that the, the Bible is clear that God loves sinners, right? And yet the Bible also makes clear that God hates sinners. <laughs> the, the, like the Bible says both. The Bible is clear, God hates sinners. I mean, Psalm 7, and I believe Psalm 12, and uh, Proverbs 16, and, and it's just like, and yet God loves them. Well, what is it? Does he love them or hate them? Yes, yes. What do we do with that? That's just the mystery of God, right? So, so there's probably some element like that going on there. The, the difference is, is that God does not hate people in a malicious, mean-spirited, bloodthirsty way. Again, I don't know how all that works, but there are texts that says God hates sinners, and they are, and when, in fact, I think it's Proverbs eleven seventeen says that sinners are an abomination to him. Wow, that's the strongest Hebrew term that exists to speak of disgust. Um, but doesn't God love him? He does, because in the complex emotional life of God, God can both love and hate sinners. So in the in the Greek and Hebrew, it's still hate. Yeah, yep. In fact, as far as I know, there's only one word in the Greek text for hate. And it's that one. So, um, so, but, but that you know, but that text right there—that's one of those things where it's like it's—it's it's meant to to knock us back on our heels. That's what the text is there to just knock us back on our heels and go, "Cah, I'm not God. I'm just a person, and I'm gonna—I'm plenty happy to let God be God." And another thing, what's really interesting too, is that people say, "Well, you know, doesn't this make us robots?" I mean, isn't this whole issue, you know, of God's election and God choosing, it just makes people robots. No, it makes them less than robots because what analogy did Paul use in Romans 9? What did he call people in Romans 9? Clay. clay. We're less than robots, we're clay. <laughs> that's, the, that's the analogy he uses and he makes no apologies for it. You know, and, if, and God is called the what? If we are the clay, God is the what? Potter. The potter. And if he has... If he is the potter, and he is, and if we are the clay, and we are, then he has the, the, the sovereign right to do whatever he darn well pleases with that clay. And we just have to trust him that he's not malicious or mean-spirited or bloodthirsty or nasty. We would be if we were God, but that's not who God is. God does what he does, and he will never, ever be, be found to be in fault, ever. Yeah, please. Mm-hmm. Who don't the yeah. And yet we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Yes. And then Isaiah and other prophets, we see God just brokenhearted. Yes. Over those who will not come to Him. Mm-hmm. So there is that. Yes. That even God feels. Yes, absolutely. So I think that's really interesting. It's a good point that you bring up. You know, God feels. Real, authentic, appropriate emotional responses at the very situations that he himself ordained. That's the issue. God can and does feel real, authentic, appropriate emotional responses to the very situations that he ordained. God, God does, we see it with Christ, he does weep over lost people. You know, in, in Christ agonized for lost people. And so we have to, you see what we're doing when we do theology? We have to keep so many things in tension, right? So many things in tension. We can't let go of any of them. We have to hold that view of God that God chooses whom he will choose, and that's the way it is. At the same time, he desires all to be saved. It's not a contradiction. It's just levels of complexity. It's a different issue. But that too, we hold fast to that, the full, complete view of who God is. Well, well stated, well stated. Uh, anything else? 
Okay, well, thanks. This, this was a lot of fun. I, I hope this is helpful. This is, you know, weeks of, of, of theology in, in two hours and, you know, 17 minutes. So we didn't get to everything, but I hope it's helpful. So you are dismissed. We'll see you on Sunday. And we'll do this again in a couple weeks. I'll let you know, okay? Thanks, guys.